Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The Cleaving of Christendom, presented by the Institute of Catholic Culture, is a four-part series on the history of the Church in the second millennium. Our speaker, Steve Weidenkampf, a lecturer at Christendom College's Notre Dame Graduate School in Alexandria, Virginia, is the creator and presenter of EPIC, A Journey Through Church History, a 20-part adult faith formation study on the 2,000-year history of the Catholic Church, available from Ascension Press. More information about EPIC can be found at www.catholictimeline.com. If you'd like to follow along, the slideshow Steve used in his series is available on the audio portion of our website. We hope you enjoy this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. And again, please visit our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org, where you'll find the best in Catholic education available to the public at no charge. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us. Okay, we're going to uh, begin in prayer. If you could please stand. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and under the ages of ages. Amen. And make us worthy, O Master, to dare with confidence and without condemnation to call thee Father, O God of heaven, and to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And give us now and bring to the nation, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Please welcome back Steve Weidenkamp. Sabatino, I got my notes. Oh, I took your notes. You took my notes. I'm sorry about that. Thank you. I do know these stories quite well, but I don't know if I know them that well. I do need kind of my notes to at least guide me or, or uh, as a band-aid so I can, you know, in case I forget where I am and I'm off on a topic. But um, I just want to briefly kind of reiterate some of the things that Sabatino talked about. I mean, this is awesome, this program he has here, the Institute. Uh, I think I shared with you before when I came in April and talked before some of you or many of you, that uh, I travel around the country and I give church history presentations and I go to all kinds of different parishes and different dioceses and it's very unique to have the program that Sabatino's put together here in this diocese, it really is. Not only is it just unique, the program itself, but the level of instruction, the, the types of instructors, the, you know, the men and women who come and, and present here to the Institute is just phenomenal. I mean, it's really a, a unique and great blessing that we have here in the diocese. So thank you for all of you who actually support, obviously by coming and listening to the presentations, but also any financial support you give to Sabatino is obviously most welcome, and, and please encourage your friends, neighbors, Catholic co-workers, what have you, to, uh, to definitely sponsor and help the Institute in any way, shape, or form. And I said all that despite the fact he took my notes and walked off from the podium with him, so he can thank me later for that. All right, so last week 
talked about the beginnings of the second half of church history. And we're looking at, remember how we divide church history into, or divided church history into these 12 time periods. And we're going to go through uh, the latter half of these time periods in these four uh, sessions together. And last week we were on our time period of crusaders and scholars. And so we were looking at the time period of the Crusades from the year 1000 to the year 1300, roughly, these 300 years of church history. Some historians have called it the glory of Christendom. This is when the church is actively engaged in three main areas that I mentioned last week. One was the military area, and we focused a lot of our time last week on that, looking at the Crusades. Then there's also the, the intellectual area and also the spiritual area. And so briefly, I just want to cover those last two areas, spiritual and intellectual, before we get into the topics um, and the time periods at hand today. So we left off last week in our time period of crusaders and scholars with this discussion of the, the spiritual area and the spiritual sphere of activity during this, this time of the glory of Christendom. And this is the age of the growth of what's known in history as the mendicant orders, or the orders that exist through begging. And these are the, the rise we see of the order of Franciscans, the order of Friars Minor, as well as the order of preachers, or commonly known as the Dominicans. And both of these orders arise up roughly at the same time. The Franciscans actually receive papal approval before the Dominicans, so they for time immemorial, have that opportunity to always poke their Dominican brothers in the eye that we were first. And we have this great flourishing, though, of, of uh, these two men. And they have different kinds of, although similar, missions in the church. Francis' mission was to preach the gospel, to go forth with his brothers and to be poor, to live the gospel authentically and encourage all they came into contact with to live the gospel authentically as well and to serve specifically the poor. Dominic's mission was just a little bit different. Dominic was actually traveling as, a, as an assistant, priest assistant with his bishop through the south of France in the 13th century. And he came to this region in the south of France that was afflicted with this horrific Gnostic type uh, heresy known as Albigensianism or sometimes you might hear it referred to as Catharism. And so he came across the, this, this wide-reaching, in, in the southern area of France, heresy. And he, wa- he asked himself some questions. Why is this heresy uh, you know, spreading? Why is it growing? Why are people gravitating towards this heretical teaching? And he came away with a couple of different answers. One, and they all kind of centered on the clergy. One answer was the fact that the clergy were not living lives that, in, in keeping with their vocation, in essence. There was a lot of misformation uh, or malformation, we would say, in the lives of the clergy. They weren't formed correctly, they weren't taught correctly, and they weren't living their lives correctly. So they gave a bad example to the people in this region of of France. And so the heretics, many of them were actually living kind of these pious lives, heretical, but pious type lives, and so they presented this attractive picture to the people in the south of France. Remember I've mentioned this phrase before that holiness attracts. We see somebody living a holy life, we see the joy they have of being in a relationship with Christ, even if it's necessarily a false one, and we're attracted to that, or we can be attracted to it. So Dominic saw that, he saw the need for clergy to be formed properly, and he also saw that most of the clergy in the south of France could not really defend the church's teachings. They didn't know the teachings well enough to be able to defend them. And so he, he recognized that he needed to form clergy who knew the faith well and could teach it and preach it to others. And so hence, by, from the call from God, he, he organized and founded the Order of Preachers. And that really became the Dominican mission, is to teach and to preach the faith. And so from the very beginning, the Dominicans have always had this teaching apostolate, which they obviously still continue to do today. The Franciscans also teach, uh, and they staff different universities and what have you, and, and there's some great Franciscan theologians, but that was something that actually came a little bit later in the course of their development. It wasn't a part of Francis's original mission for his order. So that's the spiritual sphere. In terms of the intellectual sphere, this is, as our time period says, crusaders and scholars, this is a period of time of scholasticism and this whole growth in learning and of questioning and of, of 
the kind of unification of Aristotelian philosophy and theology through the writings of, of uh, St. Thomas Aquinas that, and Sabatino just mentioned how we need to know philosophy in order to really have a firm foundation understanding in theology. And we receive that really from the men who are writing during this period of time. And during this period of time, this 300-year period of time in the church history, we have this fantastically brilliant men writing these great theological and philosophical works. Men like St. Anselm of Canterbury, who wrote works on why uh, God exists. How do we know that God exists? Who is God? Why did God become man? We have the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas, who wrote that great Summa Theologica, which most of us are familiar with, that's the bane of theology students even to today. Uh, theology students still have to study and read the Summa which is a good thing. And then we have also, too, St. Bonaventure, who was once the minister general of the Franciscan order, but was a great mystical theologian. So we just have this flourishing in the church's life during this period of time, the glory of Christendom, of uh, an intellectual flourishing and a spiritual flourishing. So things are really going well here in the church. But as we come into our next time period, things really begin to change. And this is our time period of weak leaders and schism. Remember how I talked that we break church history into 12 time periods, and each time period is given a color to help us remember what's going on. This time period of church history, weak leaders and schism, is from the year 1300 to roughly 1500, so a 200-year period of time, and we've colored it black because it's a really dark time in the history of the church. There are many things that happen that set the stage for what happens in our next time period that we'll look at and really form the foundation for what I call the Protestant Revolution, not the Protestant Reformation. I'll explain a little bit in a minute why I refer to it, and others do as well, the, the Revolution rather than Reformation. But to understand what happens during the 16th century in the Protestant Revolution, we have to know what happens in this period of time of weak leaders and schism. This is a crucial period of time in church history, which is why I will spend all of 10 minutes on it, because that's all the time I have. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Well, a little more than 10 minutes, but probably not much more than that. Remember, this is church history through warp speed. We're going really fast through these 2,000 or through these 1,000 years over the next four weeks. So what happens in this time period is this time period really sees trouble in the papacy. That Many of the popes who reign during this 200-year period of time are really more focused on the exercise of their temporal authority rather than through, through the exercise of their spiritual authority. They're more concerned about being temporal rulers than spiritual rulers. And there's a lot of instability in the papacy as well. We see during this period of time the rise of rivalries within the College of Cardinals. So you'll have French cardinals and Italian cardinals going, kind of fighting with each other to determine who's going to be pope. The French obviously want a French pope, the Italians obviously want an Italian pope. So you have this national rivalry that's created in the College of Cardinals which creates a lot of instability because it takes them a long time in cases, some cases, to actually elect a pope. And we'll, we'll talk about that more in a moment. So the period begins with a lot of instability in the papacy, and then our period here will end with what's known in history as the Renaissance popes, and I'll talk a little bit more about them when we get to that period of time. Now, one pope, just to mention here briefly, who reigned during this period of time, who's actually the last pope to live in Rome for the full length of his pontificate uh, for the next 75 years, and this is Boniface VIII. Boniface VIII was a very interesting individual. I wish I had time to get into a lot of stories of Boniface VIII. He's so interesting that... Um, uh, Dante actually placed him in one of the circles of hell in the Inferno, but um, he, he kind of gets a bad rap from Dante and others, I think. But really, Boniface had a unique ability because what he was able to do was he was able to really upset all of the major rulers of Europe at the same time, which was kind of unique. In particular, he really got aggravated with uh, the king of France, who was one of the most powerful monarchs during this period of time. 
there's a lot of tension between the church and the king of France. And that all leads to what happens after the reign of Boniface, and that's the movement of the papal residents from Rome to the south of France to Avignon. And that takes place during the pontificate of Clement V. Clement V was a Frenchman elected in 1305. He's not a very strong pope. He's easily manipulated by the king of France, who's Philip IV. He's known in history as Philip the Fair, not because he was a fair and just king, but because he had fair, translucent skin. So he's known as Philip the Fair because of his complexion, not because he was just. He wasn't by any stretch of the imagination. But he was able to convince Clement V that the papacy should move its residents from Rome to the south of France, to Avignon, and Clement V goes and does that. Now, technically, Avignon was papal territory. It had been granted to the papacy by King St. Louis IX in the 13th century, so it was technically his land, but it wasn't the land of the King of France, but the King of France had land surrounding the territory of Avignon, so it appeared to the rest of Europe that really what was happening here was that the pope was a puppet of the French king. Now, many of the popes who live in Avignon over this next 70-year-plus period of time were anything but puppets of the French king, but you could see how that, would, that impression would be given. Right? If the pope is living in the south of France and he kind of was urged to move there by the king of France, you would kind of see how the rest of Europe, the English and the Germans, would kind of look at that as, as, with suspect eyes. Right? And so it became a huge problem. And what happened as a result of that over these 70 years is that respect for the papacy begins to wane not only among secular rulers and very important secular rulers, but also just even the people as a whole. Because you can imagine, right, in our own day and age, if like Benedict XVI decided that he was sick of living in Rome, Rome it's just too hot in the summertime, it's just dirty, it's crowded, why don't we just go to Munich? Right? Munich is a much better city, I like Munich, we're just getting better beer, we're going to go and live in Munich. Right? I mean, if he did that, you know, he can do that if he wants, but if he did that, how that would cause a huge problem for the church. I mean, people would begin, well, he's German, that's why he's there, and be, would begin to see the papacy more as a national thing than as a supernatural thing, and see how that you know, would cause significant problems in Christendom. It would do so today, it did so then. So how the papacy actually comes back to Rome is through the actions of one of the most wonderful women in the whole history of the church, a woman who was very, very influential, a great doctor of the church, St. Catherine of Siena. Now, a little bit of St. Catherine's background. St. Catherine was the 25th child of a wool dyer. So she came from a moderately to large Catholic family. Um, she, she was a, a mystic who had locutions from Christ. She had a great spiritual, uh, deep spiritual relationship with Christ. Obviously, she actually even suffered from the stigmata, the wounds of Christ. They were actually invisible during her life. Because out of humility for Christ, she did not want attention to be brought to her because of the stigmata. She only wanted attention focused on Christ. So she begged him to keep the stigmata invisible while she was alive. And so she suffered from the effects of the stigmata, but it wasn't made manifest, wasn't made visible on her body until she died. Uh, so a great, great woman who just had this intense love for Jesus. She was a laywoman, a Dominican tertiary. She was, not, you know, she was associated with the Dominican order, but was not a professed Dominican religious. There was a period of time in her life where she ate nothing but the Blessed Sacrament. She lived on nothing but the Blessed Sacrament for a period of time in her life, and it didn't negatively affect her health in any way. That's all she ate was the, was the Blessed Sacrament. She was maintained in health and body as a result of that, spiritually and even physically. Now, she had an interesting relationship with the Pope. She wrote letters to the Pope and also to other people around Europe, but she had a very direct relationship with the Pope. She actually called him in her letters, Sweet Christ on Earth then also referred to him as Daddy. Very familial terms uh, when she wrote letters to the Pope. And at times, too, as we'll see, she was very direct 
when she needed to be with the Holy Father. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So she decides that this whole travesty, this scandal, really, of the Pope living in Avignon needs to end, and the Pope needs to come back to Rome. So she decides to leave Siena and travel to Avignon in 1376. Now, she spoke no French, but she took with her her confessor. He did speak French, so she was able to translate for her. She goes before the papal court. She talks to Gregory XI and urges him, pleads with him, to come back to Rome. He agrees to do so, tells her, makes a promise to her that he will do so. So since she had secured that promise from him to move back, she then went back to Siena, to her home. Then she began to get word that Gregory XI was kind of backtracking a bit on his promise. Because after she had left, the French cardinals had come and, you know, were talking to Gregory. You don't really want to go back to Rome. It's crowded, it's dirty, it's hot in the summer. Don't go back to Rome. Let's stay here in Avignon in the south of France. It's wonderful. And he began to backtrack. And so she got word of that, and so she sent him a letter reminding him of his promise and telling him what he needed to do. And this is what she wrote. She said, I beg of you on behalf of Christ crucified that you be not a timorous child but manly. Open your mouth and swallow down the bitter for the sweet. So in essence, she was telling Gregory, look, I'm hearing that these cardinals are telling you to to stay in Avignon. You promised you would come back, so don't listen to them. I don't care what they're saying. Be a man, in essence. Stand up to them and come back and fulfill your promise. Could you imagine writing a letter to the Pope and saying, you know, Benedict, be a man. Stand up, man up here. What's the problem? You know? I mean, only saints can get away with that kind of direct uh, language. We, we couldn't do that. Thankfully, we don't have to do that because Benedict is, he's pretty much a mensch. He's a, he's, a good, he's a good pope. So eventually, Gregory XI does man up, and he leaves Avignon, comes back to Rome, and enters in Rome in January of 1377. The Avignon papacy as is at an end. But there's something that's even greater going to happen in the church that's going to affect the papacy to its very foundations and really really set the stage for the Protestant Revolution, and that's what's known in history as the Great Western Schism. This is a time period of of immense confusion and chaos in the papacy in Europe as a whole, and it causes a great problem. What happens is that after Gregory comes back, Gregory XI comes back to Rome, he dies in 1378. Then a card, obviously the cardinals get together to elect his successor. There were 16 cardinals at this time. Of them, 11 were French, obviously the vast majority because the papacy has been in Avignon in France for the last 70 years. So 11 of these cardinals are French, four of them are Italian, and there's one Spaniard. So they meet in 1378 to elect a successor to Gregory XI. Now, obviously, they know, that, and the people in Rome made it known, that they wanted an Italian to be elected pope. They were afraid that if a Frenchman was elected pope, that he would move the papacy back to Avignon. We'd have this whole situation again that we just had ended, uh, you know, that had occurred over the last 70 years. So they wanted an Italian. So the cardinals got together, and they did elect an Italian. He took the name Urban VI. Now, Urban VI, when he was made pope, when he was elected pope, he really kind of let power and authority get to his head. Um, He really became very antagonistic toward his cardinals. He ruled them with an iron fist. We have an account that he actually publicly caned one of his cardinals. He would yell at them, scream at them. It was incredibly uncharitable. He even passed papal legislation restricting how much food the cardinals could eat in the course of a day. So he was very kind of uh, filled with with this power and and just really lorded over his cardinals, and it became a real problem. The cardinals began to murmur and were upset with how they were treated. St. Catherine heard of this and heard of his temper, and so she wrote him a letter, being very direct, and she said this, she wrote this to him. She said, For the love of Jesus crucified, Holy Father, soften a little the sudden movements of your temper. Trying to get him to calm down. Things are going to get bad if you don't calm down and stop treating your cardinals uh, in such an uncharitable way. 
Unfortunately, he didn't listen to her. He continued on his path. And five months after the conclave to elect him, the cardinals gathered together again. The French cardinals did. A few of the Italians, one the Spaniard went with them as well, and one Italian at least uh, refused to actually attend the college, this, this second gathering of the cardinals. The cardinals declared in this second gathering that their election of Urban VI was forced by the Roman mob. Therefore, it was not of their free will. Therefore, his election was invalid. Therefore, they chose to elect a new pope, a Frenchman who took the name Clement VII. So now we have here in the history of the church the establishment of an antipope. Now, this is not the first time in church history there's been an antipope. Actually, the first antipope in church history was St. Hippolytus, who lived back in the, uh, in the third century. So the church has had antipopes before, but what happens during this period of time is that we have European rulers now lining up to back one man who's claiming to be pope over the other. That's what's kind of unique in the history of the church. What ends up happening here is you have Clement VII, who's the anti-pope. You have Urban VI, who's the true pope in Rome. And so you have different European rulers now backing different men claiming to be pope. So we'll have, obviously, the French king backing Clement VII, the Frenchman, saying he's the true pope, and Urban VI in Rome is not the true pope. So this causes a lot of confusion and a lot of major problems for the papacy in Europe as a whole. Now, this great Western schism would ultimately affect Christendom for over 40 years. Now, even further along in the story of the great Western schism, in the year 1409, this had become such a problem that cardinals gathered together in the city of Pisa to try to put an end to the schism. And while they were there, they excommunicated the true pope in Rome, who was now Gregory XII, because Urban VI had died. Then they also deposed and declared excommunicate Benedict XIII, who was the anti-pope living in Avignon. He had succeeded Clement VII. And so they excommunicated these two men claiming to be pope, and then they elected another man to be pope who, claimed his, who, who took the name Alexander V. So now we have three men in the beginning of the 15th century all claiming to be pope. Now one thing to keep in mind during this whole period of time is that even though there were three men claiming to be pope, there is only one truly, authentically, validly elected Pope, all right, and this is the Pope in Rome. So even though you have these men claiming to be Pope, there's only one who actually is the Pope, all right, but it causes confusion. What I said earlier, you have all these different European nations lining up to back one claimant over the other. So now they're basically three. You've got a guy living in Pisa, Alexander V. You have a guy living in Rome, Gregory XII. You have a guy living in Avignon, Benedict XIII. So we have all these three men claiming to be Pope. How the schism comes to an end is through the calling of an ecumenical council. It's the Council of Constance. It's one of the most important councils in the history of the church. Anybody, who's actually heard of the Council of Constance? Raise your hand. Okay, there's, 17, there's like two, three people, right? Most people have never heard of this council. It is one of the most important councils in the entire history of the church. As we can tell, it doesn't get enough press. So we need to, we need to change that. This Council of Constance met here in uh, 1414 to 1418. It was actually called by the Holy Roman Emperor Sigismund. Sigismund called this council because he wanted the whole Western schism to be in an end. He wanted only one man to be pope, to be, you know, claiming to be pope, and for unity to be restored in Christendom. So the cardinals and bishops and other representatives gathered together, imperial representatives gathered together in the city of Constance, and this is what they did. They deposed the anti-pope who was living in Pisa at the time, a man who had succeeded Alexander V, who had taken the name John XXIII. So we have this anti-pope, John XXIII, living in Pisa. He's declared deposed by the Council of Constance. Now, some of us have already heard of John XXIII, right? John XXIII was pope in the 60s, 
right? And the reason why John Angelo Roncalli could choose that name, John the 23rd, is because this guy, claiming to be Pope and taking the name John the 23rd, is not Pope. He's an anti-Pope. So this is not the real John the 23rd, right? So that's why that name was still available for John to take, because this was not a real Pope. So the council declares deposed this anti-pope living in Pisa, John XXIII. They declare deposed then also Benedict XIII, who's the pope, anti-pope rather, living in Avignon. Then what happens at the council is something very interesting. Representatives of the pope in Rome, Gregory XII, come to the council and they read a letter from Gregory. And in this letter, Gregory do, does two things that are very important. The first and the thing he does in the letter is he declares that the, this council is a valid called council. He approves the calling of the Council of Constance. Now why that's important is that no meeting of bishops in council in, in the history of the Catholic Church can ever be considered authentic or valid unless two things happen. Either the Pope calls the council or the Pope approves the calling of the council. So in this case he didn't call the council but he approved it. He said I recognize this as an authentic council in the history of the church. So it's an authentically approved council. The second thing he does after that is he resigns the office of the papacy. So now there is no one who is pope, so the cardinals are now free to elect someone to be pope. And they do so at the Council of Constance. They elect a man who takes the name Martin V. And so the great Western schism is now at an end. Now I explained all that in about less than 10 minutes. Um, and so if it was confusing, that's, that's to be expected. It was confusing living during this time to figure out who was pope and who was not pope. You even had saints of the church claiming this you know, anti-pope is the real pope and that Pope in Rome is not the Pope. It's a very confusing and difficult time in the history of the church. But ultimately it gets settled out here at the Council of Constance. But again, you can see what this does to the office of the papacy. Remember, the office of the papacy is supposed to be a source of unity in the church. Right? That's Peter's mission and his successors, really, is to teach and preach, obviously, with the authority of Christ, but also to be a source of unity for the whole church. And this office that was established for that was a source of disunity during this time. And it was a severe and significant stain in the history of the church. And it caused lots of problems, as we'll see. What one of the outcomes of this, that what it leads to, is again the papacy focusing just on its temporal affairs. And so at the end of this period of time, and moving into our next period of time, you have in history what's known as the Renaissance popes. Men who come to the throne of Peter, ten of these men who come to the throne of Peter, who many of them occupy the throne of Peter and don't really live up to the great calling and great vocation they have been given by God to be Pope. One such man, which our, our wonderful brothers and separated brothers and sisters usually always talk about whenever they want to bash the papacy, he's the poster child of the Renaissance popes and the bad Renaissance popes, is Alexander VI. Alexander VI's given name was Rodrigo Borgia. He was a Spaniard. A very interesting man. He was guilty of one of the ecclesiastical abuses, which unfortunately were prevalent during the, this time in church history, known as pluralism. Now, the abuse of pluralism is this, is that before he became pope, Alexander VI, Rodrigo Borgia, was the bishop of five different dioceses. That's the abuse of, of uh, pluralism. At this time, men could actually provide some, a level of contribution to, to Rome and be granted, the bishop, be granted to be a bishop of several different dioceses. All right, so Rodrigo Borgia actually was bishop of five different dioceses. Now, why would you do that? Why would you want to be bishop of five different dioceses? Well, this is a period of time, obviously, you know, feudal period moving into the Renaissance period, where land is wealth, 
And so you want to, obviously, if you have more land, the more land you have, the more wealthy you can be. And Rodrigo Borgia was the bishop of these five different wealthy dioceses. Now, this obviously, as we all know, is not what's supposed to happen in the church. It was an abuse that was prevalent during this period of time. There were many people within the church who were writing against this type of abuse and others, calling for the church to reform herself and to stop these, these really bad and horrible practices. Right, eventually, the church will listen, but will only listen after something great and traumatic happens, which we'll talk about in a moment. There were other abuses that occurred during this period of time as well. The abuse of pluralism leads to the abuse of absenteeism. Obviously, if you're the bishop of five different dioceses, you can't be in five places at once. So you'll have dioceses, and you had them through this period of time of church history, that did not have a resident bishop. The bishop never, there was no bishop. The bishop I mean, there was a bishop, but he wasn't there physically in the diocese. The classic example of this is the Archdiocese of Milan. The Archdiocese of Milan during this period of time for, for nearly a century had no resident archbishop. There was an archbishop of Milan, he just didn't live in the diocese. That, that ended in the 16th century when St. Charles Borromeo is made archbishop of Milan and actually lives in the diocese and reforms the clergy and reforms the life of the church in that diocese. So we have pluralism, we have absenteeism. During the reign of the Renaissance popes, another ecclesiastical abuse that arises is nepotism. These, these Renaissance popes come from these different, very powerful Italian families, and they kind of want to keep the papacy, so to speak, in the family. So they appoint their nephews and other people related to them to very important places in the Roman Curia in order to try to ensure that the papacy would be passed down to you know, their relatives, if not immediately after their, their death and perhaps a little bit later. So we have nepotism. We have absenteeism, pluralism, nepotism. There's also simony the buying and selling of ecclesiastical offices. All these abuses are going on in the church during this period of time, unfortunately. And like I said, there are many people in the church who are calling for the church to reform herself. But as I mentioned last week, it does take the church some time to actually you know, um, do things at times. Sometimes things move very, very slow in the church. And so these abuses eventually will be corrected. And we'll talk about that more next week. But uh, it takes time and it takes something dramatic to happen, which will kind of motivate the church into action. Now back to Alexander VI. Alexander VI was guilty of that abuse of pluralism. He was an interesting man. He was very personally charming, a very shrewd politician. It's said that when he was elected pope, he was extremely excited, and he yelled at the top of his lungs, I am pope! I am pope! Because he was happy and excited to be pope. Now right there, that should tell us something is wrong with this man. Because anybody who would be joyful over being elected pope should have their head examined, right? No one, would, no one in their right mind would want that job, right? No one would want to be given that responsibility, right? Look at our own Holy Father, Benedict XVI. I mean, Cardinal Ratzinger, he kind of, you know, in the homily at opening up the conclave, he basically told the cardinals, look, don't, don't elect me. I don't, I don't want to be pope, right? But they did. The Holy Spirit obviously moved them to do so, and he became pope. But no one in their right mind wants the job. It said also, too, the story goes that one of the cardinals who was present during the conclave that elected Alexander, when he exclaimed how happy he was at being, made, at being elected pope, this one cardinal, whose name was Giovanni de' Medici, who en ends up becoming Pope Leo X, Giovanni de' Medici turns to one of his fellow cardinals and says, Flee! We are in the clutches of a wolf! <laughs> so you can tell, again, this guy was not necessarily the right man for the job, so to speak. We do know for a fact that Alexander VI had illegitimate children. He had nine illegitimate children, seven while he was cardinal, uh, with two different women. One of his illegitimate sons was a man by the name of Caesar Borgia. Now, Caesar Borgia and his merry band of mercenaries ran around the Italian peninsula during this period of time, raping and pillaging and plundering wherever they went. 
Uh, it was a significant problem. And what, one of the legitimate criticisms against Alexander at the time was that he never spoke out against his son's uh, doings throughout the Italian peninsula. He never said, this is wrong, told him to stop, excommunicate him, didn't do any of that, just kind of let him rampage throughout the Italian mainland that caused a significant problem. There was one interesting fellow that was with Caesar Borgia's band of merry mercenaries, and his name was, as most of us will know, uh, this, this person is Niccolo Machiavelli. Machiavelli wrote a little book on political leadership called The Prince. Many historians believe that his model for the, his, the ideal prince was Caesar Borgia, the illegitimate son of Alexander VI. We do know for a fact that while he was Pope, Alexander VI had a 19-year-old mistress. He was in his 60s. So we see, during this period of time, men who were, like this, the title of the period says, were weak leaders. These were men who did not live up in accordance with the keepings, the high keepings of the, of the office of the papacy. Now, we also need to keep in mind, though, despite the weak and immoral and sinful men who occupied the papacy during this period of time, not all of them were as bad as Alexander VI. He's kind of the worst of the bunch. But we need to keep in mind that even though we had these men who failed to live up to the, to the callings of the office of the papacy, that does not in any way, shape, or form invalidate the office of the papacy. Instead, what really this, the whole Renaissance popes show for us is the presence and activity of the Holy Spirit. Because during this period of time in church history, these popes never taught anything contrary to the faith. They never tried to change the teachings of the faith. They didn't try to undo any doctrines. They didn't add any doctrines or any kind of, of um, any aspect of church teaching at all. They were more concerned, as I mentioned, with ruling as temporal princes than they were as being the spiritual shepherd of the church. And so the Holy Spirit, I think that illustrates for us the whole activity of the Holy Spirit guiding and keeping the church free from the error, even of men who occupied the highest office and highest authority in the church. And so we need to keep that in mind and always mention that whenever we talk to people who attack or criticize the papacy. Right? We can even take our own history as, a, as, a, as an example of this. Right? In the not-too-distant past, we've had presidents who haven't necessarily lived up to the calling of that office. Right? They've lived immoral lives or have done things not in keeping with, the, with being the chief executor of the land. Yet we don't say that, well, the office of the presidency has no authority. We should just get rid of the office of the presidency, you know, get rid of the Constitution and change everything because of this one bad apple, all right, so to speak. So we can apply the same kind of thing to the papacy. The actions of a few men who lived immoral lives does not in any way, shape, or form invalidate that divine institution created by Christ. Right? Popes like us are fallen yet redeemed creatures need, absolutely need God's grace in order to, to live the lives that he calls them and calls all of us to live. So this time period comes to an end. Weak leaders in schism. The church is obviously very weakened. That source of unity, the papacy, has, was a source of disunity. It's become a serious problem because of the way that these Renaissance popes lived. And what, brings, what comes next in the history of the church is our time period of protesters and defenders. And for this color, for this time period, I've chosen the color orange, because it, the orange is a traditional Protestant color, especially in Northern Ireland. It comes from uh, what's known as the Glorious Revolution of 1688, when William of Orange comes and, and takes over the throne of England and gets rid of the, at the time, Catholic King of England, James II. Catholic historians refer to the Glorious Revolution of 1688 as the Inglorious Revolution of 1688, and that's really how it should be referred to. Now, during this period of time the, is when the church actually fractures and breaks. As one historian has said, it's the cleaving of Christendom. It's the rise of the Protestant Revolution. And I call it, and other Catholic historians call it the Protestant Revolution instead of the Protestant Reformation, which it's more commonly known as, because what happened during this period of time is authentically a revolution from the church. Not a reform of the church, but a revolution. And we have to understand those two different words. A revolution 
seeks to destroy that which exists and replaces it with, replaces it with something else, something completely different. A reform seeks to take that which exists and make it better, return it to its pristine state, return it to a, a place where it once was, not to get rid of it. And as we'll see through the, through, hopefully as we'll see tonight, through some of the writings that I'll quote from Martin Luther, that he really in particular and those that followed him were revolutionaries. They sought to completely supplant the church and put something new in its place, something made in their own image and likeness, not to reform the church and make it better. How this all begins is through this life, through this, uh, the life of this Augustinian German monk, uh, Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a very interesting man. He had a very difficult and interesting childhood. His father was overbearing and very abusive, both physically and verbally. He also had a very bad relationship with his mother, not a very close relationship with his mother. As Luther tells the story, he had this kind of conversion experience in the early part of the 16th century when he was coming home from university. He was off at university. His father wanted him to study law and become a lawyer. He was walking home from university one day, and he was engulfed in this huge lightning storm, this huge storm, lots of rain, torrential rain, heavy winds, lightning was striking around and near him, and he was very frightened and was afraid he was going to die. And one lightning bolt struck near him, threw him to the ground. He was afraid for his life, and what he does is he yelled out, as he recalls, a prayer to his father's patron saint, and his father's patron saint was St. Anne the mother of the Blessed Mother. And so she, he yells out to her and says, St. Anne, please help me, I will become a monk. So in essence, you know, he made a bargain with St. Anne. If I live through this terrifying experience, I will dedicate myself to the church and become a monk. He lived, he fulfilled his promise to St. Anne, and entered into an Augustinian monastery, much to the chagrin of his father. He was actually a very brilliant man and a bright student. In the year 1512, he was made a doctor of theology with a focus on the scriptures. Now, Luther had a very troubled life throughout his life, not only his childhood, but even into his adult life. He had many different spiritual struggles. As he explains it, he was obsessed with his own salvation. He was obsessed with knowing whether or not he truly was saved. How do I know that I'm truly saved? How do I know that I'm justified before God? He was really, really concerned about that. He later came to believe that how he could answer that question, whether or not he was saved, was through faith alone. It's known in, in theology as sola fide, through faith alone. It's only faith in, in Christ alone that, if I, that I know that I am saved. If I just have faith in Jesus, know that he is my Lord and Savior, that he died for me, then I, and I accept that and believe that, then no matter what else I do, I can attain salvation, right? through faith alone. He also taught and began to believe, he wasn't the first person to teach this, but he, be, he taught and believed that the only source of God's authoritative revelation is the sacred scriptures. There's only one source of God's authoritative revelation, and that is the sacred scriptures. So he discounted completely the Catholic understanding of sacred tradition, denied it as a source, an authentic source of God's revelation. It's known in theology as sola scriptura, right, scripture alone. He also had a very interesting view of God. He believed God was a vengeful and wrathful tyrant, not a loving father, and we are not necessarily adopted sons and daughters of God as loving father, as Jesus revealed to us, but rather God is a tyrant, he wrote this. He said, God gorges us with great eagerness and wrath. He is an ambitious and gluttonous fire. So this is how Luther saw God. God was a fire, this judge, this evil, wrathful judge, just waiting to kind of strike us down. Luther also was afflicted with not only spiritual, symptoms, spiritual problems, but also many physical problems as well. He had all kinds of different cardiac symptoms. He had severe anxiety, heart murmurs. Uh, he was depressed at times, had low self-esteem. 
He suffered from constipation, indigestion, hemorrhoids, severe kidney stones, and a buzzing in his ears. Now, if I had all those physical problems, I probably would be quite angry and violent myself and might see God as a vengeful, wrathful judge. But we know all this about Luther because he was very, he's very frank in his writings about telling us of his physical problems. If you ever read Luther's writings, you'll get a, a great taste of who the man is because he doesn't leave anything on the side. He really lets you know who he is and what's afflicting him. He had very interesting character traits. He was a man who was incredibly scrupulous. There are stories of him going to confession over and over and over again for the same sins, confessing the same sins over and over again, because he, he couldn't be assured that he had been forgiven, that he was right with God. He was very scrupulous about that, those kinds of things. He had a stupendous power of will. If he set his mind to do something, he was going to do it and see it through. A very stupendous power of will. He was a very charismatic speaker. He could dominate an audience, dominate a room. Very, very charismatic, had a very dynamic kind of personality. But, as we'll see through some of his writings, he also had an extremely violent temper and extremely, was, was very prone to anger and to fits of anger and violence, as we'll see in a moment. Now, how Luther comes to the stage and how he kind of kicks off, so to speak, the Protestant Revolution is through this issue he took with this, what was going on in Europe at the time. And the issue was this, was that under the pontificate of Julius II, Julius II endeavored to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And in order to finance the construction of the rebuilding of St. Peter's Basilica, Julius decided to attach to uh, the giving of alms, the penitential act of giving of alms, giving money for the construction or the rebuilding of St. Peter's Basilica, an indulgence. So one could receive an indulgence by giving the, through a penitential act of giving money for the rebuilding of St. Peter's Basilica. Began under Julius II, Pope Leo X also continued that practice. What happened, though, unfortunately, is that these indulgence preachers were sent out throughout Europe, and many of them really didn't give an authentic interpretation of Catholic doctrine according to indulgences. And they really played, preyed upon the ignorance of many of the people, the people who really weren't completely formed well in their, in their theology and in their catechism. So they preyed on the ignorance of the people and let, gave people the impression, many of these preachers did, including one known, Johann Tetzel, who was, walking, who was preaching through Germany at this time, that, that if you gave money for the rebuilding of St. Peter's, then in essence what you could receive for the giving of that alms was really relief from purgatory. Or you could receive relief from one of your uh, relatives from purgatory. And so there was this fine line between whether you were actually giving the alms as a, as a means of penance, or whether you were just giving money and receiving a spiritual benefit for not doing any kind of penance. It wasn't really preached very well. It was a, it was a thin, thin line, really ripe for confusion. If you had a bad preacher and a bad, person, bad preacher who didn't know his theology and didn't uh, articulate it correctly, it really could cause a serious problem. So a lot of abuses from these preachers were prevalent during this time. Luther became upset at this preaching and this erroneous preaching, but really what caused the problem with Luther was Luther was not upset with the preaching of indulgences or the, the inappropriate preaching of them. Really what he, was most, um, what he most criticized the church for and what he called into question, which got him into trouble, was he questioned the authority of the pope to even grant an indulgence. Right? We know as Catholics that the, reason, the whole reason why we have indulgences is because through the salvific merits of Christ and the saints, right, grace has been built up in heaven, and there's this note, we call that the treasury of grace. And that we know that the Pope, and we believe the Pope, through the keys of the kingdom of heaven and earth, he has authority to dispense grace from that treasury to us, right, when we perform penitential works in the form of an indulgence. All right, so what Luther said is the Pope has no authority to dispense that grace whatsoever. That's what really got him into trouble. 
The question, the story with Luther always centers around the fact that he was upset with the preaching of indulgences and the abuse of indulgences and the selling of indulgences. That really wasn't his issue. I mean, yes, he was upset with that. There were others in the church who were also upset with that because it wasn't abuse. What he was really got himself into trouble with, though, is that he challenged the authority of the Pope to even grant an indulgence. And when you read the 95 Theses, which is what he uses as the vehicle with which to begin the debate and to begin the revolution, when you read through the 95 Theses, many of them, you know, are, there's nothing wrong with them. There's nothing heretical with them. But the ones that are, and the ones that got him into trouble, is where he specifically calls into question the authority of the Pope to even do what the Pope is doing, the granting of these indulgences. So on October 31st of 1517, he nails these 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg. He denounces the, the um, indulgences. He denounces the authority of the Pope to even grant indulgences. So he begins to get himself into trouble. The church quickly, um, his 95 theses are sent to Rome. The Pope actually sends a representative, Cardinal Cajetan, to Germany to talk with Luther about his teachings, to try to get him to recant to teach him the, uh, the correct teaching of indulgences and to have him acceptant. He refuses to do so. So what happens in 1520, so three years after he first posted his 95 Theses, is Pope Leo X issues a bull against Luther's teachings, and it's known as Exerge Domini. And in this bull, there are many of Luther's teachings are condemned by Leo X. Leo orders Luther to stop preaching and to submit to the authority of the church within 60 days. Luther's response to the publication and the issuance of, of Exerge Domini was to publish his, on his own, three separate uh, treatises during the course of the year 1520. And in these treatises, he lays out his revolution against the church. And these three treatises are these, an appeal to the Christian nobility of the German nation, in which he actually calls for the nobility in Germany to separate the church from Rome, to create a national German church that would be under their authority, not the Pope's. That's a very revolutionary move. That's not a reform move, that's a revolutionary move. Create a separate church beholden to the secular authority of a region, not to the Pope himself. He also wrote another treatise called On the Babylonian Captivity of the Church, in which he calls into question the entire sacramental order and sacramental life of the church. He basically attacks all seven sacraments. He starts off in the beginning of the book saying there's only three uh, validly uh, sacraments that he can see from Scripture, by the, and he discounts the other four. By the end of the book, he contradicts himself and says, no, there's not really three, there's two. So even, even from the beginning to the end of the book, he, he's kind of you know, swaying in his mind as to what's an authentic script, or a sacrament and what's not. The third book he wrote was called On Christian Liberty, which was a whole treatise on free will and on uh, liberty of the Christian soul and the Christian conscience. He also took a copy of Exerge Domini to the outskirts of the city of Wittenberg, to basically the city sewage dump, where he burned it publicly. And then he wrote this to the people in the city, to the people of Wittenberg. He said, He who does not resist the papacy with all his heart cannot obtain eternal salvation. So are these the words of a reformer or the words of a revolutionary? He's really, really on the path of revolution from the very, very beginning. Some of Luther's teachings, additional teachings he lays out in these three treatises. One is to, Luther believed in what's known as the total depravity of man. In theology, it's this, is that the Catholic understanding is that when Adam and Eve committed that original sin, when they disobeyed God and ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what happened was their, their nature was wounded. Not only did they separate themselves from God, they also wounded their nature. And so that even though Christ has come, even though we receive grace from Christ through the sacraments, even though we can exist in a state of sanctifying grace with God, our nature is wounded to the point that we are tempted and are inclined at times to sin. All right, in theology, this is known as concupiscence. 
Right? I mean, St. Paul even talks about this in the scriptures. Paraphrasing, he basically says, you know, I, I don't do the things I know I should do, I do the things I don't want to do. Right? I'm paraphrasing. But in essence, that's, this is the whole notion of concupiscence, that our nature is wounded because of the effect of, this, of that original sin. Even though we have grace from God to do what we know we need to do and to live the authentic life and live a relationship with Christ, we still are wounded, and so we are inclined to sin and tempted, and sometimes we give in. Right? So the Catholic understanding is that we are deprived of God's grace in the very beginning. That Adam and Eve were deprived of God's grace, and so that wounded our nature. Luther's understanding is that our nature was completely depraved. That when Adam and Eve sinned, they broke forever that relationship with God, and so human, the, soul, the human nature is completely depraved, completely bad. There is nothing that can be done to actually make it better. Right? You cannot, we cannot be made whole because we are completely depraved beings. Right? This is why God is a vengeful, wrathful judge, because he's upset and angry at that original sin. Right? It's, a very, it's kind of very dour theology and a very dour way of looking at the human soul and human life. He also advocated for the total destruction of the church. He wrote this. He said, to speak plainly, my firm belief is that the reform of the church is impossible unless the ecclesiastical laws, the papal regulations, scholastic theology, philosophy, and logic as they at present exist are thoroughly uprooted. Not reformed, not made better, thoroughly uprooted, completely done away with. He also called the church the whore of Babylon and advocated for the destruction of the mass. He also wrote, if I succeed in doing away with the mass, then I shall believe I have completely conquered the pope. If the sacrilegious and cursed custom of the mass is overthrown, then the whole must fall, meaning the whole life of the, the whole church will fall if he does away with the mass. He specifically went out to destroy the mass. He also wrote that the pope is the antichrist. He wrote this, The abominable and horrid priesthood of papists came into the world from the devil. The pope is a true apostle of his master, the hellish fiend, according to whose will he lives and reigns. Again, is this the writing of a reformer or the writing of a revolutionary? Now, there were those who wrote in response to Luther's writings. One in particular, very important personage at the time, a man we've all heard of, who was the king of England at the time, his name's Henry VIII. Henry VIII wrote a book in response to Luther's teachings, known in defense of the seven sacraments, in which he attacked Luther's theology and defended the church. As, as a result of that, the, kings of the monarch of England was granted the title by, the, by Pope Leo X, Defender of the Faith. It's a title that they still hold today. So Queen Elizabeth II still has the title Defender of the Faith, although we really question what faith she is defending. So it's really it's not the Catholic faith, obviously. Now, Luther knew of, of Henry VIII's book, he read it, and he wrote a response to Henry uh, about his book. And in his response, Luther really kind of attacked not only Henry's teaching, or the, his defense of the, of the sacraments, but he also attacked Henry personally, and this is what he wrote. He said, Henry VIII is a nit which is not yet turned into a louse, a brat, a brat whose father was, not a, was a bug, a donkey who wants to read the Psalter, a sacrilegious murderer, a chosen tool of the devil, a papacetical sea serpent, a blockhead and as bad as the worst rogues whom indeed he outrivals, an abortion of a fool and the limb of Satan. So Luther kind of had a way with words. You know, he, <laughs> like I said, when you read Luther, you really, you really know where he's going. You don't have to really go too far to interpret what he's talking about. Now how this all comes to a head in Germany is that the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V calls a meeting known as a Diet of all of the major uh, German nobility of the electors to the Holy Roman Empire, Emperor 
the major clergy, archbishops of different cities, to meet here in the city of Worms in what's known as a diet, just basically a meeting of all the important personages in Germany. And he wanted to bring this whole issue of Luther to a close. Luther was invited to the, to the diet. He appeared. He was given safe conduct, so he could not be arrested or harassed either on his way to the diet, at the diet, or on his way back from the diet, or back home from the diet. And so he was brought before the Diet, asked to recant his teachings, and refused to do so. As a result of that, and there was debate in the Diet. Some of the German nobility actually sided with Luther and believed in his teachings. Some of them very publicly and openly said this. Uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, was not among them. Uh, he was a very devout Catholic, a very young man at this time. He was uh, elected Henry, Holy Roman Emperor in 1519 at the age of 19. So he's only 21 years old here at this Diet. But he defends the faith. And he says this in response to Luther. He said, It is certain that a single monk must err if he stands against the opinion of all Christendom. Otherwise, Christendom itself would have erred for more than a thousand years. From now on, I regard him as a notorious heretic. So he's declared a heretic by the secular authority. Heresy was a secular as well as a church crime during this period of time in church history. Uh, you could be arrested, and obviously you could be executed because heresy as a secular crime was a, was punished, was a capital offense. What happens, though, is because he'd been given safe conduct to the Diet, he was allowed to leave the Diet unmolested. And on his way home from the Diet, certain uh, of those nobility who were favorably disposed to him had, these, had men, armed men, come and kidnap him. I put kidnap like this because he, they knew, he knew he was going to get kidnapped. These men come, they steal him away, and they put him up in a, in a castle so he's away from all the imperial authorities and out of the way and in the hopes that he would live in this castle for a bit of time to let everything kind of cool down and maybe people would forget about him. And while he's there, he does some scripture translations into German and, and works on various things. What happens, though, in Germany in the year 1525, so shortly after the Diet of Worms, is that there is what's known in Germany in German history as the Peasants' Revolt. And the Peasants' Revolt is really kind of a misnomer because it didn't involve just peasants, we think of, but it was also free citizens of different towns and other people who wanted to rise up against the nobility. And the reason why they rose against the nobility is from Luther's writings. Luther's writings sparked this intense debate throughout Germany about whether or not one should follow uh, authority. You know, if we can reject the authority of the church, then we can also reject the authority of the nobility. Why should we listen to them if we don't have to listen to the church? And so this revolt was launched in 1525. These group of peasants and armed people went around Germany. They destroyed churches. Uh, they attacked no noblemen and noble lands, and it was really a major problem. So certain German princes and nobility come to Luther, and, and they talk to him, and they say, you know, we're protecting you from the Holy Roman Emperor. We're protecting you from the church. Uh, you have caused through your writings this rebellion. We want you to put an end to it. So stop it. Write something that will stop this. So he does. In May 1525, he writes a pamphlet which he entitled Against the Murderous Thieving Hordes of Peasants. Again, that kinda, you don't really know where he's going with that title. <laughs> What's going to be the thesis with that? He, said, he wrote this. He said, Let everyone who can, he's talking to the nobility, Let everyone who can smite, slay, and stab, remembering that nothing can be more devilish than a rebel. It is just as one must kill a mad dog. One cannot meet a rebel with reason, your best answer is to punch him in the face until he has a bloody nose. Now, by the end of 1525, it's estimated, historians have estimated that about 130,000 German peasants are killed as a result of this violence and this uprising, principally because of Luther's writings, urging the nobility to quash it through violent means. Towards the end of his life, Luther continued, he continued to write throughout his life. Towards the end of his life, he came out with a pamphlet in 1543, which he entitled, On the Jews and Their Lies. 
in which he advocated an eight-point plan to get rid of all of the Jews in Germany, either by religious conversion or by expulsion. He called for the ability to destroy Jewish synagogues, schools, and homes. He wanted rabbis to be forbidden to teach. If the Jews would not convert, then they should be forced into heavy and hard manual labor. And he wrote this, They must be driven from our country. We must drive them out like mad dogs. Now, there are many reasons for why the Holocaust happened during the Nazi regime in the 1930s and 1940s. But one reason which I think does not get enough of, of a look and enough of, a, of, a, of research and, and of uh, validity is this whole issue of Luther and his writings and how they influenced Germany and how they influenced Germans, in particular how they influenced northern German, northern Protestant Germans. There's one historian who has kind of looked at this and have draw, has drawn this link. This man by the name of William Shire, and he wrote one of the greatest works on the whole history of the Third Reich, known as The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. And in it, he writes this. He says, it is difficult to understand the behavior of most German Protestants in the first Nazi years unless one is aware of two things, their history and the influence of Martin Luther. The great founder of Protestantism was both a passionate anti-Semite and a ferocious believer in absolute obedience to political authority. He wanted Germany rid of the Jews. Luther's advice was literally followed four centuries later by Hitler, Goering, and Himmler. Now again, many different reasons why the Holocaust occurred. But one reason which I think must be discussed and looked at is this influence of Luther during this period of time on the German understanding of, of Jews and, and the role of Jews in German life from then well, in the following centuries. Now, at the end of his life, in March 1545, Luther wrote one last pamphlet, which he entitled, Against the Pontificate at Rome, Founded by the Devil. In it, he wrote this about the popes. He said, The popes are a, desperate, are a set of desperate, thoroughgoing arch-villains, murderers, traitors, liars, and the most utterly debased and depraved beings on earth. He, the Pope, should be seized, he and his cardinals. Their tongues should be torn from their throats and nailed in a row on the gallows tree. I would like to curse the Pope and his supporters so that thunder and lightning would strike them, hellfire burn them, the plague, syphilis, epilepsy, scurvy, leprosy, carbuncles, and all manners of disease attack them. So, I don't really, does he like the Pope? Does he not like the Pope? I, it's hard to see, it's hard to tell in his writings. In, March, or in February of 1546, Luther suffered a stroke and then died shortly thereafter. Now, I highlight all these writings to you in different quotes, selected quotes from his writings. Um, you're free to read all these writings on your own. I encourage you to do so. If you want to read his, his treatise on the Jews and their lies, easy to Google it, Luther on the Jews and their lies. It comes right up. You can read it in English translation. I encourage you to do so. Read what the man actually wrote. Most people, including most Lutherans, have never read what he actually wrote. And so, therefore, have no idea who he really was and what he really believed. It's also important to note that, obviously, most Lutheran theology today is so different from what Luther actually taught that you know, we cannot really equate the two. It's really as if they're really not truly Lutheran. They have the name and maybe some aspect of culture or tradition, but it really is completely very much different. So don't run home you know, and talk to your Lutheran friend or your Lutheran co-worker and say, do you know who Luther really was? You know, yet we have to be charitable in how we talk to our separated brothers and sisters. But encourage them and urge them to read the writings of this man. You know, I have all my graduate students read his three famous treatise, uh, treatises from 1520, much to their chagrin. They don't like reading it. Uh, Luther is a very difficult uh, man to read at times. Um, you do know where he's going. Like I said, you, do, you, you get his point pretty quickly. But it's very tedious reading. You know, he's very violent at times in his writing as well as in when he was speaking as well. So one way in which to understand Luther and his role in this whole Protestant revolution is he was the voice. He's the man who gives voice to the revolution. 
The man who organizes the Protestant Revolution is a man from France, a man by the name of John Calvin. Now, John Calvin's very an interesting um, personality during this whole period of time. One great Catholic historian, Hilar Belloc, wrote this of, of Calvin to try to explain who Calvin was and why he was the way he was. This is what Belloc wrote. He said, It was the French spirit, but the northern French, the less generous, the people that have no vineyards, which produced John Calvin. So that'll come into play a little bit later. So just keep that in mind. He comes from the north of France, no vineyards. It'll come into play in a minute. Now, Calvin was very different from Luther in, in pretty much every aspect. Calvin was different temper, temperamentally. He was a man who was much more kind of calm, less violent, less angry in his speaking and in his writings. He was very systematic, very organized in how he wrote. He was very calm in his preaching. Uh, when he preached, he was never rude or humorous. He was just very direct, on target, to the point kind of thing, a very direct individual. Around the year 1529 or so, he became a follower of Protestant teachings. Eventually, he writes a book in 1536, which brings him fame throughout Europe. It's known as the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And what he does in this book is he attempts to systematize Protestant theology. Because heretofore, you had had these different heretics who had kind of advanced many different Protestant teachings, what we would call Protestant teachings, but they were not really organized or systematized. You really, thank you, you really had no, you know, sense of order to them at all. They were just kind of the different opinions of all these different uh, preachers and teachers. So what Calvin wanted to do was to systematize that, organize that, and that's what he did in the book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. He, he continued to preach, obviously, many of these different main basic Protestant tenets. Sola Scriptura, the only source of God's divine revelation, the authoritative source, are the sacred scriptures. He, he believed in the total depravity of man, just like Luther. He also established this doctrine of the elect, and this, this the new kind of interpretation of predestination, that really God had predetermined who would be saved and who would go to heaven and who would be damned and go to hell. And there's really nothing we could do to determine you know, our fate at all, because it was already predetermined by God. The publication of this book, as I mentioned, brought him fame throughout all of Europe. Eventually, he settles in the city of Geneva, and in 1541 there, he establishes a theocracy, where he takes the civil government and he unites the civil government with his authority as a religious ruler. So we have something kind of unique in European history. Before, and during the time of the glory of Christendom, which I mentioned last week, you had the church and the state very closely aligned, because you had, for the most part, secular rulers who were faithful Catholics, or tried to be. So you had the church and the state kind of very closely aligned. Not the same, but closely united and aligned. In Calvinistic Geneva, what you have is the fusion of those two spheres. The temporal and the spiritual sphere are completely fused into one. Such that if you lived in Calvin's Geneva during this period of time, Belloc refers to it as you would have lived during the war on joy. The war on joy. And this is why he writes that. Because if you were a Christian living in the city of Geneva during uh, Calvin's reign, you would confess your sins to a public judge, to a, in a public court of law, to a judge. The judge would then give you a, your penance. You would have to perform some kind of level of penance, and it would be given to you by this public magistrate of the city, a judge of the city. You could be given the death penalty for such crimes as adultery, pregnancy out of wedlock, or striking a parent. So if you hit your mom or your dad or you're upset with them, you, could, you, know, you violated one of the commandments, you could be given the death penalty for such an offense. Calvin then passed prohibitions against dancing and singing. Couldn't do that in Geneva. You couldn't stage or attend theatrical plays. You couldn't play cards or shoot dice. You couldn't wear jewelry or makeup. He also passed restrictions on naming children after anyone but figures in the Bible. And he also had restrictions on how long a woman's hair could be. 
So he completely controlled the lives of the people of Geneva. No singing, no dancing, no drinking. It was the war on joy, as Belloc said. Just to give you a taste of what was like uh, statistically in Calvin's life in, in Calvin's Geneva during this time, in a four-year period of time from 1542 to 1546, in a town of about 10,000 people, there were 58 executions, 73 exiles, and 900 imprisonments for violation against Calvin's teachings. Obviously, the vast majority of people followed through on Calvin's teachings and believed them, but there were those who didn't, who challenged, and as a result, they were then dealt with. Now, Calvin actually even executed Protestants who disagreed with him. Other Protestants, people who didn't live in the city of Geneva. There was one man, a man by the name of Michael Severitus, who got a hold of, of Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion, read it, and while he was reading it, disagreed with many of the things that Calvin taught. And so in the margins of his copy of the book, he wrote little notes, you know, this is wrong, or this is what I think, and, you know, throughout the whole book. He then took the book, the, that copy of it, and then had it sent to Calvin in Geneva. So Calvin, you know, got this book, and with all these criticisms of his, of his book, from this guy, and you know, most authors don't like to be criticized for their work, um, unless it's you know, really good, authentic, uh, you said you did something wrong, you said something wrong, that's fine. But most people don't like to be overly criticized for their stuff. He was overly criticized, Severitus was very critical, and Calvin vowed that if Severitus ever showed his face in Geneva, he would be arrested and dealt with. And for some reason, Severitus actually did go to Geneva. Historians are still um, at odds as to trying to answer why he did. But he ended up going and traveling to Geneva. He was recognized in a church, listening to Calvin preach. He was arrested. He was tried before the city magistrate, sentenced to death, and burned at the stake. So even if you were a fellow Protestant and disagreed with Calvin's teachings, if you disagreed the wrong way, then you could, be, you could suffer a pretty severe penalty as a result of it. Now, as I said, Luther was the kind of the voice of the revolution. The one who gave organization to the revolution and really kind of set it more in motion is Calvin. Through his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he organized and systematized Protestant theology. He established a way of living the Protestant life in the city of Geneva, so it was served as an example for other Protestants throughout Europe and emboldened them that you could live a Protestant life a certain way. I don't know why you'd want to. You couldn't sing and dance and do all the fun Catholic stuff. But it was there, you know, for it to be done. Although we don't sing very well, right? But some of us do, actually. Um, so you had this, you know, this, this kind of uh, light, or this, this example, rather, for the rest of Europe. Calvin also established the University of Geneva, so he, where his theology was taught, and there were students from all over Europe that attended this university. We have records of students from Russia, for example, coming as far away as Russia to study at the university. Another man who studied at the University of Geneva and knew Calvin personally is a man by the name of John Knox. John Knox would leave Geneva and go to his homeland of Scotland, and he would lead the charge and lead the revolution in Scotland against the Catholic Church. Ultimately, John Calvin died in 1564 at the young age of 54. He really, in a certain sense, worked himself to death. He was a man who was, was a constantly working. He worked late at night. He would answer letters that were sent to him from all over Europe. He was constantly you know, writing different uh, sermons, rewriting, writing commentaries, furthering his theology. He was a tireless worker, and he, and he did really, in a certain sense, work himself to death. As I said, Luther was the voice of the revolution. Calvin was the organizer. As we'll see next week when we meet, this Protestant revolution will continue, and it will actually cross the straits, or it'll cross the channel, and will infect even England, and we'll see, and we'll talk about the story of England next week, and how the church then will actually authentically reform herself through what I call the Catholic Reformation, and we'll talk about that in more detail next week. Before we do, and we take our little bitty break, a little break, I meant to mention before uh, I actually began this, this presentation, but... I'm sure this crowd all knows this, but there's a very important event 
that happened on this day in church history 439 years ago. What was that event? All right, the Battle of Lepanto, right? We, we celebrate the Feast of Our Lady of the Holy Rosary on this day. The whole reason why this feast exists is because of the Battle of Lepanto. As, as it would be, um, I'm scheduled to, next week, I'll talk about the Battle of Lepanto. So it would have been nice if we maybe moved this whole series up a week and I could have talked about it today. That would have been very cool, but it didn't work out that way. So I'll talk about it next week. So if you want to know why we celebrate the feast we celebrated today, come back next week. All right? So thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much, Steve. Uh, and uh, Mr. Weinkopf also forgot to uh, mention that he has his epic oh, series in the back um, for sale, which goes through all of church history. It's very, very well done. Um, and it's back there in the back. There's, uh, you can buy it in parts, I believe, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Where uh, just the, the paper version or the audio version, it's all back there. So take a look at that. We'll take our quick break, uh, three minutes or so. Somebody brought up a point. I mean, it's valid, you know, good point that, that um, you know, translated the scriptures into German, and he did. He translated the scriptures into German, but he wasn't the first person to do so. There were translations of the scriptures into German before Luther. So, uh, but you know, it's one of the stories that goes along with Luther that he was the first one to actually do this. What Luther did do that was kind of unique was that he translated it into a language, a German language that was, that was modified in a certain sense by him so that it was easily understood by more people throughout Germany. And I, I kept referring through the talk just for ease of, of convenience or for ease that, of this notion of Germany. I mean, at the time when Luther was living, there was no Germany as we know it. There was no unified country of Germany. Many of you are nodding, so you know this. I mean, Germany was not a united country until the 19th century, right? So at this time, in the 16th century, there were over 300 some odd different principalities and dukedoms and little bitty fiefs and things all throughout Germany. And there were different dialects and different versions of German. There are different, you know, accents and things today. That's kind of the, the uh, modern-day uh, legacy of all those different uh, dialects. But so there was German that was not necessarily, you know, commonly, it wasn't a common language with which you could express things in German, you know, in a way that made sense to all these different principalities. And that's one of the things that Luther did do, was he kind of made this common way in which German could be understood in all these different regions. But he wasn't the first person to translate the scriptures into, into German. That's one of the data points of the false narrative associated with Luther. So. The uh, question I have, the... Um Popes who were not uh, real popes, did they um, create bishops? And what happened to people's uh, bishops who were uh, made by these uh, uh, false popes? Yeah, good question. I mean, did you know? Did the anti-popes actually, you know, kind of act as popes? You know, did they did they um, uh, approve of the nomination of bishops? Did they, you know, uh, create a separate kind of structure, so to speak? I mean, yeah, they did. They did function as popes. I mean, they, you know, they participated in the sacraments. They did, um, you know, nom- or they other secular rulers would nominate bishops and things like that, and they would approve that. So, I mean, you did have uh, this. That's why it was one of the areas of so much confusion during the time because you had, you know, these different people aligned with these different anti-popes or the real pope in Rome. So, how do you sort this all out? So eventually how it all gets sorted out is through the Council of Constance. I mean, that, that you, have the one, you have the one guy who's pope, all these others are deposed, right? But even those who were elected, you know, their ordination to being bishops and things like that were not uh, invalid. They might have been illicit, you know, but not invalid. So there was still the handing on of authentic the sacraments, you know, through that. So, but that's, again, why schism is such a bad thing. Because, and that's really what was happening at this time, was that the church in itself, in the Western world, was in schism, you know, internally. 
And so that's why schism is such a bad thing, because you still have valid sacraments. You still have the handing on of apostolic succession and whatnot. It's just this authority of who is the real pope and who is not. That's, that's the major issue. And it causes all these kind of you know, different groups to arise, which then brings about confusion and chaos. Just so everybody is, is clear, what we'll be dealing with on Saturday is what Steve was talking about last week yeah, not this about time. 1054 and the schism right. between the East and the West, yeah, not the, which is considered the great schism right. in the church. Okay, And now we're talking about the great Western, Western. schism, the schism within, within the Latin patriarchate. Right. First of all, how did the two uh, popes who were deposed take that? And <laughs> yeah. and what, what did they do in reaction? And what happened to all the yeah. people who they had in their lack of a better word, in their court? Did they yeah. just give up and say, we'll join the real pope, or did they go off and do heretical things? Yeah, no, many, many did over... I mean, when those two guys end up dying. I mean, they didn't take it very well, obviously. I mean, if you, if you think you're the real pope, if you think you're pope, and somebody says you're not pope, even if it's an authoritative saying you're not pope, you're not going to take that too well. Um, and so, no, they didn't really like it. One, the one pope, um, Benedict the third, anti-pope, Benedict the Thirteenth, who lived in Avignon, he was a Spaniard. He's actually the one Spaniard, uh, Pedro de Luna was his name, who participated in the conclave of 1378. So he was the one guy who was, had been there from the very, very beginning. Um, and he didn't take it all too kindly to, uh, to, to being deposed. And actually it took, what I said, you know, I said it really fast because we have time, but I mean it took years actually for, for all of this to kind of shake out. I mean the council met over a four-year period of time, you know, broken up and whatnot, session, but the sessions met over four years. And so Pedro de Luna, Benedict Thirteenth, it took him a while to eventually, uh, he never really did you know, agree with the decision, he just dies. He dies, and then at that point, once he dies, you, know, you already have Martin V, who is the real pope, and everybody at that point, all of Christendom, is acknowledging that you know, Martin V is the true pope. You know, this, this Spaniard over here in Avignon, he's just kind of crazy, we're not going to listen to him. I mean, that really what ends up happening. It's how it all gets eventually settled. Those guys die, and then anybody who was aligned with them just either leaves the church or stays with uh, the church in Rome with the, with the authentic pope. So. Yes, with your respect to uh, Pope John the 23rd, the anti-Pope uh, anti yep. 23rd, mm. did the same thing happen with Benedict the 13th? Uh, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, because th there is a, a validly elected you know, uh, Pope of Rome, Benedict the 13th, Right, and so this guy who's claiming to be Benedict the Thirteenth is not really Benedict the Thirteenth, correct? All right, final question. I'd just like to get your comments on uh, some of the early popes weren't actually ordained priests, and did that account for some of the? Uh, right, not when they were elected. Yeah, I mean, yes, they all were at one point. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, in the early, I mean, there was, for a period of time, and I think canon law has changed, but I mean, for a period of time, you didn't, you didn't have to be a priest, you didn't have to be a member of the clergy to be elected to the Pope, the, uh, the papacy. You didn't even have to be a cardinal, even if, you know, you could have a bishop or somebody. So, I think that's been changed to the point now where you do have to be ordained, uh, if not, have to be a cardinal. But I'm not certain that's exactly the case, but, but definitely a member of the clergy. So, yeah, those who were elected before in the early days of the church who were not clergy at the time of their election then were ordained clergy. So ordained a priest and then ordained a bishop so that they could then be the bishop of Rome. So. Thank you, Steve. All right, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155.
and may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.